I realize your guy's show is for the lore, which seems like it actually for the lore, and it almost <laughs> works. <laughs> You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves into the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Joining Roger is Joe, writer from WoW Insider and World of Maticus, and Vince from Massive Nerd. Apparently I don't come from anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to For the Lord. This is Roger coming to you on Tuesday, the 10th of July. We are actually going to be having a very interesting show touching back on a game that we have not talked about now for quite a while, but we are going to be doing so without Vince. He's not going to be joining us tonight. But Joe is here and he's actually going to be taking the reins for most of this because we're going to be talking about Miss of Pandaria, which I have not gotten into the beta. So all I know is what I've read, but I do have a lot of questions and it's going to be great to hear about not just some of the recent things that have gone through, but also some of the things that, you know, if you're not in the beta, you don't necessarily know a lot of the different dynamics in the game, a lot of the different stuff that they're putting in for, say, skill trees and talents and things like that, as well as our Pokemon game, pet games, which, dude, I swear to God, I cannot wait for that. You How sad is else, that? It's like one of the most anticipated features that they've ever had, possibly since the the... Uh, haircut the the actual barber shops. Yeah, I it's just uh, like I did a lot of collecting of pets on especially one character, and uh, and so I'm really looking forward to to doing this and the idea of going out and catching more of them. I know it's again it's an absolute ridiculous thing, but there's a reason why Pokemon is ex- as successful as it is, not just with kids but adults too, and that's because it plays to that collector mentality in you oh, that yeah. you want to get them all you want to collect them and then the idea of fighting against other players just sounds like a ton of fun well and that's going to bring about one of the features that we're going to see in the expansion that a lot of people are super excited about if you're any anything like me or roger you spend a lot of your time collecting uh, whether it's special mounts or if it's you know pets or whatever the case is in mists or as soon as 5.0 update hits all of the mounts minus class specific mounts and all of the pets that you get, uh, all non-combat pets, are going to become account-wide. About so every character time. you create uh, on your Battle.net Battle account will have those, as long as it's on the same faction, same server type deal. Which is kind of cool, because for if you're somebody like me, who I do, I collect a ton of pets. But I have them scattered throughout my Hunter and my Shaman. This brings it all together, which is going to be absolutely fantastic. And then going back to the pet battles, you're going to have a whole new slew of of pets that you can randomly encounter in the world and actually fight and try to capture. And just like Pokemon, they'll be affected by things like climate, uh, the time of day, the weather, uh, because there is weather in every zone now if you have if you miss that memo. So that's kind of be, be really cool for all, anybody who's addicted to Pokemon or wants something to do in the game that's not necessarily daily quests, not necessarily running dungeons or raiding, but just wants to have some fun and wants to use all those pets and everything that they've gathered over 
seven years now of this game being live. It's going to be something that, again, sometimes you just want to log in and shoot the breeze with your guild. Or, you know, just you're you're doing some profession stuff, some crafting stuff, or, or something like that. This will give you the opportunity just to have some fun while you're doing that with something completely different. And... And people do get attached to their their little mini pets as well, especially if it's one that you had to do something specific for, like the I think about the sprite uh, darter hatchling. Oh yeah, absolutely. which that was more of you know you had to go through a whole bunch of quests to do it, or the little spiderling that you had to go into um, Blackrock Depths was it or yeah I believe it is. It was black. Yeah, it was. Blackrock Spire. Black okay, Rock yeah. Spire. So anyway, so all of those, and then I've got like the collector's edition mini pets, which you don't see as many of. So that's kind of cool there. And now I've been running around with my little fetish shaman because of the <laughs> D3. That That's the best thing about D3 collector's edition is a freaking mini pet in WoW. That's what I think of D3. But um, but that thing is bloody awesome. <laughs> it's I, <laughs> Have you been in a party yet with somebody who has one out? Half of my guild has it. Okay. It's the pet that they have out on just because you can hear him all the time making this <laughs> constantly. It's like this constant stream of gibbering. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I have not grown tired of it yet. So, but yeah, the idea that I'm going to be able to mess around with that is is great. And also, like you were saying, the not having to have, you know, if I'm getting the 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 robot. Um, the robot chicken or a squirrel or whatever. I don't have to make, you know, eight of them for all of my alts. They're all going to be there. Now, that being said, though, it's going to be account wide, but rela- but per server, obviously, right? I believe so. Yeah, it would have to right be. Right now, at least in the beta, I have characters on both servers and they're not shared throughout them. So I'm assuming that it's going to be battle.net account bound, but based on your specific faction at the very least. Um, if not the server. Yeah. So they, they haven't really specified because it's been changing, it's been fluctuating, they've changed which mounts qualify, which mounts don't. Um, before, like, they were excluding PvP mounts, now PvP mounts are being included. Oh, really? So it, they're kind of waffling a little bit, so we'll, we'll find out soon, I think. I'm just happy that I will never have to do the Nether Drake <laughs> Oh, my God. Dailies Nether Drake again. Rep, Skyguard rep, too. So there you go. Done. <laughs> oh. No, now, I, I think that's great, too, because especially when you're looking at the pricier mounts, mm-hmm. like if you're looking at the chopper, I've only got one chopper on my server, and that's because I'm too damn cheap to to do more of them the, for my other guys. Or, or the mammoth. All the, of those, the, the yeah. Very caravan Well, the, the well. Vial of Sands. If you were to save up to buy that at 40000 you sure as hell don't want to have to be buying it again and again. So I like the idea that, boom, it's there. You got it. Absolutely. And on the same topic of pets and mounts, we recently just got the rewards for the Mists of Pandaria Collector's Edition that will be coming when you pre-order. And it's going to be the very, very absolutely awesome Kieran Quillen pet and mount. And these are the giant, looks like dragon lion things. So you get this like jade statue, epic out, amazing mount. But you also get this little tiny like lion dragon pet cub with a little mane going on for your little non-combat pet, which I think is kind of cool because I don't know about you, but when I get the collector's editions for any of my games, I really, one of the first things I look for is the mini pet. And this I think is absolutely adorable. It's like the, the Quillen had uh, an awesome baby with the, the pug 
the pug pet that you get from doing all those randoms. Yeah. And this is the result. It just looks really cool and really cute, actually. I'm just super impressed that they are putting a mount in this time because like I, I I've loved the mini pets. Well, not the BC one, the burning crusade one sucks. It's terrible, but the other ones are fantastic, but putting a mountain. Oh my God. Now there you go. There you've got something that is actually a, uh, for lack of a better term, a nice little status symbol that listen, I invested a little bit more because I'm supporting the game and boom. And it's not a small mount. This thing is gigantic. It's, it's it has a presence about it. So that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I absolutely can't wait. It's actually, I, I like ground mounts and I know that's really stupid and some people may disagree with it. But one of the things I like to do in WoW is I don't sit on my flying mount all the time. Like, even when I'm in a city, it's not about my flying mount. It's not about my my griffin or my dragon or whatever it is. It's the ground mounts because I think the ground mounts tend to have the most personality. And this has a ton of personality. Oh, yeah. So I might actually put away my uh, my love chicken for a little while and, and ride around on this thing in regal epic style when it comes out. And it just looks that awesome. Speaking of the the flying ones too, we did see the pictures of the uh, flying mount that the pandas are going to be getting. That the flying serpent, uh, the the flying what is what is it called again? Flying. It's the cloud serpent. Yeah, that dude, that thing is gorgeous. <laughs> but it's it, it's not just for pandas, but it's going to be the the quote unquote panda flying mount, the race flying uh, mount. But it's the one that's going to be for everybody. Different factions are going to have different colors of it. There's one that's made out of, looks like it's made out of smoke, which is really, really nifty. So it looks like when it's flying, it has like this trail of smoke particle effect behind it. It's completely jet black with gray hair, red horns, red eyes. Absolutely amazing. Um, they have ones that look like they're made out of precious gems like jade um, and other stone working things like that, which looks really, really awesome. And then they have like the, the more traditional colors like the yellows, the reds and the greens and things like that. But it just it, it, it's kind of cool because like how we had... In Cataclysm, you had the, and I can't remember the name of the, the, the basically the big one that everybody had. It was, what was the big flying mount? The drakes, the, right. the weird drakes yeah, yeah. that they had. Now, those were kind of cool, but these are so much more better, so much de more detailed. They just, they look absolutely amazing. And that's going to be this expansion's sort of awesome flying mount. Now, not to be completely overshadowed, the Ground mount looks pretty damn awesome. Too. Oh, yeah. yeah. The dragon turtle is one of the coolest ground mounts I've seen, especially for just a racial mount. And you have the, the regular ones, which are like the tiny little snapping turtles that, that have currently a little, little piece that you can sit on, like the, the oriental sort of uh, looks like a pillow. And they have like the, the bigger ones, which are armored and awesome. They have like nose rings and just look like they can really take off your head. And they have all sorts of like accoutrements around the the saddle, like different lights and saddlebags, and and all sorts of little tiny minutia that are just absolutely amazingly detailed. And right now, if you go into the beta, they're sitting around like your major city, right where the portals are in Stormwind, is a bunch of turtles just kind of lazing around, and there's a nest that they're protecting the eggs for, and they're all kind of like swimming around near where all the monks are practicing right below this giant hot air balloon. And it's just like this awesome scene to come over the, from around storm Stormwind keep and just see these awesome, like just turtles just laying about all over the place. And the colors of them are just absolutely amazing. I, yeah. they've outdone themselves. Oh, definitely. Like, well, I, I think this is better than the goblin trike. 
Yeah. Oh, no, it definitely is. N- not to be outdone, though, we also got to see some pictures of the um, the jewel crafters are going to be getting mounts as well. So they're going to be getting these incredible looking mounts and you can actually combine them all. They're Voltron. They're like a Voltron cat (laughs) that has got all these gems sticking out of it and everything. And it is the sexiest freaking mount you will ever see. Of course, it's going to cost a small fortune, but if you've got the money, oh my God, it is gorgeous. Well, and that's the thing, like, there's that particular mount, there's a lot of information that's up in the air right now, because originally it had five individual patterns. It had the black, yellow, green, red, blue, just like Voltron, and it really was a nod to Voltron, and you had to collect all five of them to turn them into uh, the the giant, essentially it was like a golden, silverish, metallic mount of wind. Um, but now they're saying that you get one pattern and every time you create it, it's something different. And so they're kind of fluctuating on that one. The model looks absolutely oh, yeah. cool. There's no doubt in my mind that that's going to be this expansion's money sink. Yep. So yeah. that and the two new engineering mounts. I don't know if you saw those. No, I didn't. What are they getting? There are, there are two engineering mounts, one for Goblin and one for Gnomish. Um, there's one that is. Oh, come on. That's it not looks, right. It, it, but anybody can buy them. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. They're, they're buying down equip. So they're, they're just like the Mechanohog. One looks like it's uh, a traditional rocket with three little prongs on it, and it's very sleek and, and, and skinny, and it looks kind of like the 50s spaceships from the serials, just really bright orange and really kind of kooky and, and nifty looking. My personal favorite is the depleted Cranium Core uh, rocket mount, which is a giant bomb that has been repurposed into a flying mount. Not only is it a giant bomb that's been repurposed into a flying mount, it has the Red Baron sort of like lightning strike on the side of it. <laughs> and it has it has a vehicle function as well, which is kind of nifty. When you get into it, it has another panel that pops up. One of them is a radio where you can actually change the station and have different oh, music Jesus. playing while you're in this mount. <laughs> and the other one is a harmless, uh, like, looks like tracer rounds that you fire out. So as you're flying, you can just fire tracer rounds like you're, while you're chasing your friends or whatever the case is. And it looks absolutely hysterical. Well, that is awesome. Okay, let's start talking some more then about what's going on right now. I'm going to actually leave it to you to decide what you want to talk about first. Go for it. Well, I mean, we might as well start with pandas, since that's going to be the big thing about Mists of Pandaria anyway. So pandas are going to be the new race, and we've talked about this before. They're going to be one of the first, or actually the first, true neutral race. They start out without having any sort of faction. You have to go through the entire starting zone until you get to the end, where you actually have to complete a quest and choose which faction that you're going to serve, whether it's Horde or Alliance. Now, these particular uh, pandas are, are... basically located on what's called the Wandering Isle, which is the back of Shen Zin Su, the giant world turtle. And he is a giant dragon turtle of epic proportions that carries the Wanderlust pandas. Now, these are the ones that, instead of wanting to stay at home where it's safe, or quote-unquote safe, they want to explore the world. They want to see what's out there. So they loaded up on the back of this giant turtle and went out into the world. And this is where we've seen certain pandas pop up in the past, like our lovely Chen Storm Stout from Warcraft 3. He was one of the Wanderlust Pandarians. So 
that's where the story for them officially starts. It's on the back of this turtle. It's where these people have been training, or these pandas have been training to take care of themselves. And this is where they first get their interaction with the people from the Alliance. Because after the events of Cataclysm, after this giant fuck-off maelstrom explosion where Deathwing has said, I'm dead, I want it, you know, everything's going to go to hell, and there's giant tsunamis and storms and everywhere, the turtle gets thrown around, and the Alliance and the Horde both stumble upon it. So what are they going to do? They're going to investigate. And that's how the Pandarans really first, as a race, start to interact with both the Alliance and the Horde and the various races therein. Which is very important because part of the backstory of the pandas is that the original isle, the actual you know, Pandaria itself, has been shrouded for about 10,000 years. Nobody has been there. Nobody can get there, including the pandas of the Wanderlust. They don't know where their home is anymore. They cannot get back to it at this point when they're out there in the world. Because the last Pandaren emperor, sensing that there was great basic danger, potential for danger for the entire world, that everything in the mortal realm was in jeopardy. And this is back during the Sundering, mind you, that he would basically make a deal with the ancient Shah, which were demons and otherworldly beings, to shroud all of Pandaria from the rest of the world so that they can complete their own existence and just not worry about anybody else. After the events of with Deathwing, though, that all gets pushed away. And after we start interacting with the pandas, we learn that this whole new wonderful place exists. And that's when, now that we've already had our little fight on the back of the world turtle and have decided that, and luring pandas left and right, whether they're coming over to the Alliance or the Horde, now it's time for us to go to this unspoiled land and start doing what we do best, expand. Now, something that's very interesting that I've read about this is how because you are essentially starting off as a neutral panda and then you choose whether you're going Alliance or Horde later on, they were saying that you won't be able to add um, friends till mm-hmm. you've decided and uh, things like that and join a party um, with anybody outside of the pandas until after because you haven't decided on which way you're going. I'm assuming that also means that you can't actually join your guild until you've reached level 10 and have made that decision of which side you're going. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. So right it now, makes it a very insular kind of secluded questing starting where you're you're kind of remote from everybody else, which I kind of really like that. It makes you appreciate the story because you're not just chatting with your guild members. Well, not only that, but it also eliminates the possibility of you feeding uh, heirloom gear to those brand new pandas before they're done with the starting experience. A lot of problem that they had with the new races and cataclysm was these beautiful starting areas, these wonderful starting areas. And they really, really were is that people would basically just completely out level and not really pay attention to anything that was going on and just speed through it as quickly as possible. And the goblin starting area and the worgen starting area were absolutely well done. And they were fantastic pieces of just lore and questing. Just well done, well done package, but people just, powered through it. They got through the end. They gave themselves heirloom gear so they could speed through it, completely ignore quests, not have to worry about actually doing things right. And then they also had the ability to use whatever guild perks they had at the time. So if you're in a guild that happened to have, you know, the XP bonus, the traveling bonus, things like that, it it just sort of took away from that experience. 
by making that sort of insular experience where it's just you and just that particular event, that story, and that character's sort of birth into the greater Azeroth, they're doing themselves a fantastic service and correcting a problem that Cataclysm certainly had. Yeah, and and to be honest, it's not like it's going to take you that long to get no. to that level, but it will make it so that during that time you are you are in for it. You are in for the duration of the story and actually taking part in it and not just, well, like you said, cruising through. I mean, yeah, later on if you've got several alts and you've already done it, you will, but for that first couple of times, it's going to actually mean something and you'll be a part of it. I, I really, I quite like that. And as somebody who has completed the starting experience a couple times now with different pandas that I've created, I can honestly say even if you're going to race change your character into a panda and just kind of like not do the starting area, do yourself a favor. Create even a throwaway alt. You're going to get an extra character slot anyway. Get created yourself a brand new alt. Do the panda starting experience at least once. It is some of the most beautiful design work I've ever seen in a starting area. The 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 entirety of this this turtle, this great exploring world turtle, is amazing. The detail is awesome, and it doesn't look like your stereotypical like wow forests and wow mountains. Everything is so well detailed. Everything looks absolutely amazing. It's just, it's one of those few experiences where I, I actually sat down and just took my hands off the keyboard and mouse and just, wow, this looks phenomenal. Yep. So highly recommended. All right, moving on. Now, moving on, the, after you've created your panda, one of the most important things that the pandas have are what classes can you pick? What racial bonuses are you going to get? Well, the racial bonuses will go through pretty quickly. They're, they're not too groundbreaking, but... Um, I don't know are, about that. One I them, would say it is. <laughs> one, of them, one of them is not groundbreaking, but one of them is definitely game-breaking. Uh, Epicurean, which is their basic food buff. Pandas love to eat. Uh, passive increases, passively increases the stat benefits from any food you eat by 100%. That's crazy. That means that all those raid feasts, all of those foods you get, you get double the bonus of what any other class or race gets. Now, what's kind of cool about that, too, is depending on what class you pick... You get specialty food when you create your character, whether it's one that increases strength if you're a strength class, agility if you're an agility class, intellect, spirit, so on and so forth. So that's kind of cool. That's that's going to be game-breaking. You're going to see a lot of people race-changing the panda just because of that. Oh, of course. Especially hardcore raiders. I, I see no reason to make a character another race. I'm, like, I mean, if you are serious about what you're... about endgame... I, there's no reason, unless you can't with, they don't play it that class, there's no reason not to pick these guys. They're just scissors. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, among the same lines, uh, their cooking bonus, they get a racial cooking bonus of positive 15 called Gourmand. They love to eat. They know they're eating. They definitely know their food, so they get a nice little passive bonus to it, just like dwarves get with guns or jewel crafting bonus from Draenei, and so on and so forth. Now, the other one, and this makes certain sense coming in as a racial feature for right now. Inner peace. Passively, your rested experience bonus lasts twice as long. And that's partially to help them sort of get up to speed. Because, I mean, they have to go from level 1 to level 90. So after you get past that starting experience and after you get into like the level 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, while that stuff was redone for Cataclysm, it's still not some of their best stuff. They want you to be able to get to... 
Pandaria content as quickly as possible. So on top of your bonus, your guild bonuses, on top of your uh, heirloom gear, you're going to get double rested XP essentially. Again, the, this is going to make it so that you can level a character in no time flat. I mean, yeah. so I've gone from I've gone from one to ninety in six days played. Yeah. So like, it's not going to be, it's not going to take long to to level a character up. Like that, that's both good and bad. I mean, it's good for those of us who've been around for a long time. We've done damn near every quest from one to 90. So that's good. But for someone who is just coming in, it screws the game up royally because now, well, granted those people won't have all of the heirlooms either. So that's, there is that, but I mean, it's, it, it, it breaks. Well, one of the things that it breaks the most are your professions because you outlevel them so, so fast and so quickly, mm -hmm. like right away. And it's impossible to catch up and, and, and never get them back again until you finally are finished quest, you finished leveling. And so this is going to be one of those things that, I mean, it's again, it's a double edged sword. It's good in some ways, but it is going to ruin a lot of things too, just because it's too damn fast. Absolutely. Now, they also get the traditional, what I like to call the gummy bear racial feature, which is called bouncy. Uh, whenever you fall, you take 50% less falling damage. Now, I think that's really cool, especially when you start getting to Pandaria, because as you're exploring, there are a lot of rewards for jumping off of cliffs or going down the side of a mountain that would normally just kill you. But with the racial bonus for people that like to explore their, their, their world and not wait till they hit level 90 and not wait till they have to have, you know, till they can buy flying in the new zones. This is great. This is absolutely fantastic. I was jumping off the mountains and like, it should kill me. <laughs> oh no, it didn't. Yes. Keep going. So and I, I got to see a lot of different places that I would have had to wait. And that sort of, I wouldn't have feel as accomplished getting to had I just flown over there. A rogue with this, that slow falls, yes. not slow falls, but has, uh, doesn't take as much damage when they fall my god they take next to no damage and they stack it's a 75 percent uh or they're multiplicative excuse me it's a 75 percent oh <laughs> good lord reduction <laughs> for falling jeez and not to be outdone they also have the traditional monk sort of passive which is which everybody gets but it's called quaking palm uh you activate a secret pressure point on an enemy target putting it to sleep for three seconds now, it doesn't work on beasts. So far in the beta, it only works on humanoids. I'm not sure if that's intended because it doesn't say that that's what it was originally intended for. Um, but in the alpha that I played a year ago, it was humanoids and elementals, no beasts. Now it's just humanoids. So I don't know if they're still tweaking it. But it's kind of cool. It's a three-second sleep. So if you need to run or get the hell out of Dodge, you can tap somebody on the head, watch them go to sleep, and run the fuck away, which is kind of nifty. That is again when you're looking at all of that, it is like overpowered compared to like other class, other races. Like I mean, humans have got obviously the 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 best you, you one, but no, no, I'm talking about the um, the faction bonus. The faction bonus as well. Yeah, but I mean, this is all around. Again, there's there's just no reason not to choose these guys. Well, I don't know. And right now, a bunch of people on the beta forums are arguing math-wise of what's going to wind up being better. Because don't forget, we're going to get an additional 1% crit. Yeah. You're not going to get an additional 1% hit. Um, you have the best mana regeneration in the game comes from Blood Elves. Uh, period. Like, period. They have the absolute top mana regeneration in the entire game. So there's a lot of argument going back and forth. So compared to 
the racials that are there right now, some of these seem a little overpowered, but the way that everything's been retweaked over the years, it's not going to completely overshadow everything else except for that food buff. That's the only one I'm yeah, worried about. That's crazy. Because for like for me, I'm a dwarf. And my dwarf shaman, the biggest thing he has for him going on right now is stone form, which is essentially a 10% damage reduction every two minutes. And that's pretty good for survivability. But what would be more beneficial for me? That 10% damage reduction, which I can then make up for with other stats and abilities that I can pick up elsewhere. Or Epicurean, if I turn myself into a panda, where I get 180 intellect instead of 90 intellect, um, 180 stamina instead of 90 stamina, what's going what's gonna to math out to be better? So I think that's going to be what we're going to have to watch, and I wouldn't be surprised if that number changes from 100%. I really wouldn't. Right. Okay. Now, racials are good, but what are those racials going to mean if you don't know what classes you can play? And the classes that pandas will be able to play right out of the gate, monk, of course, Hunter, Mage, Priest, Rogue, Shaman, and Warrior. They will not be able to play a Paladin, they will not be able to play a Druid, Boom. and they will not be able to play Death Knights. The three classes that they can't play are all lore-related. Like, every single one of them has to do with the lore and history of the Panda race. The DKs, during the reign of the Lich King, the Wanderlust Pandas had not been discovered yet. The only real panda that had ever been seen was Chen Stormstout, the one from the hero from Warcraft 3. And the Isles of Pandaria, the, the actual island itself, was still, still shrouded by that, that mystic force. So that they could not be seen. They were not part of the Scourge invasion. They were essentially completely removed from all of the events of Azeroth. Which also plays a part in the way they quest, too. Because you got to understand they don't know anything that's happened with the rest of the world. So as you're going through, your panda is experiencing the ravages of war from the Horde, um, the rab or the ravages of war from the Alliance, the, uh, the effects of the Scourge, and so on and so forth. And so they're getting to see the world for the very first time outside of their little bubble. Very kind of epic, especially with some of the quests that you get along the way are like, are literally your NPCs like, what happened here? Oh my God, look at this. Druids as well, because they have a different relationship with the natural world around them. They tend to deal more with elementals as bridges to the spiritual world. They deal with elementals of nature. So instead of being druids where they actually revere nature and understand the, the, the Emerald Dream, their sort of religion, their sort of mythology, the, what they have for their mythos, fits with better with a shaman or a priest, or a monk, versus the druid itself. And paladins, they don't have the word of holy light there. They don't believe in the same sort of, you know, one epic being. They believe in the spirit of the ancestors. They believe in the Shah. They believe in the Kappas and things like that. So it's this complete, like, removal of these three classes based on their religious beliefs and their, the history of what the race has gone through. Which I think is it's kind of cool to see why those would be excluded and to have them tied so intricately with the history of them. I agree. I do agree, but it still ticks me off because I would love <laughs> a Druid uh, Panda. I would absolutely adore it. And, and in so much as you can make sense of it, not being included, you could make it work as well. So it, it true. I think it would have been a nice fit to actually be in there and to have, again, your, your bear form is taken care of. They could actually just honker down on all four, and, and there's your bear form. Yeah, yep. and I think, like, 
the thing with the druids too, and I, I know I'm showing my favoritism here, obviously, but the thing with the druids is that like we've we've been complaining for like over seven years that it doesn't matter how epic your gear is or whatever, you turn into form and there you go. They gave us oh thank you, Bubbles, for making all that noise. Coolie down. <laughs> <laughs> Freaking duck. Um they uh speak of animals. They gave us the different skins, which okay, that was Part one, we are going to be getting armored versions. I'm using those Vince look quotes. Amazing in game. But it's again, it's just going to be one thing. So you have Agreed. like one kind of epic version of yourself, and that's pretty much it. Doesn't matter if you change out your outfits. And I know there's only so much they could do because it's you know, it's it's a bear. They can't make armor fit or a cat or whatever. And they did do a few different things like the flaming cat staff and things like that. But It'd be nice like this. They had the opportunity to give us a completely different looking, you know, freaking. They could have done not just the bear, but all of the other animals themed them a little bit differently to work with the panda. And I think it's a, a missed opportunity that also still could have worked with the lore very well. Well, the other, the other side of the coin, too, is they've been talking a lot. Like, there's been a lot of blue posts, a lot of interviews that they say that they want to evolve their game. They want their game to actually take on that persistent, evolving world that they've always wanted it to be. And they started doing that with Cataclysm a little bit, and they want to explore that even more with Mists. And one of the things they're doing is every single update for Mists... Every single time that you, you know, there's a new content patch or a new tier patch or a new like major update, it's going to be like a mini expansion in and of itself where the entire world around it changes as well. So the world's going to march forward. Does that mean that we might see, you know, panda druids in the future? It's a distinct possibility. Those class combinations may change. It, you never know. It's something that they have talked about. They've been sort of very vague on purpose when they've been asked flat out will we ever see classes and race combinations change again um they haven't they said not to rule anything out and if i know the people that have been interviewing and I've, I've talked with a few of them personally it wouldn't surprise me if maybe we did see panda druids later on as they've been interacting with the war game yeah. or as they've been interacting yeah. with you know the horde and the tauren so it's it's a distinct possibility yeah yeah no that would be awesome and it would fit too, because then they they would have had their story the way they wanted to tell it, but then go from there based on the experiences that the class the race then has with the 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 others that they come in contact with. So, like I mean, that doing something like that is energizes the game as well because it it keeps it alive. So it's not stagnant, always the same. It actually evolves and. Like when they did that with the, the trolls and they gave them um, mm -hmm. druids, it was the same thing. It, it showed that the game was evolving and not just staying stagnant. And I love that. Absolutely. And it was one of those things that it was so well received that I would be very shocked if they ignore that. I really honestly... Somebody would. start a petition somewhere. Okay, move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know the, the quote-unquote good guys of the story, right? The pandas, the panda race, the absolutely amazing... Uh, pandas, which I love their character models, including the females. Yes, I love them as well. But now let's talk about a little bit about the bad guys. Now, the bad guys, these are going to be the, the sort of focal point for at least the first part of the story. Number one is going to be the mantid. Uh, they are mantis-like humanoids. Uh, they are thought to predate even the mogu uh, as far as inhabitants of Pandaria. They theoretically are the absolute first inhabitants 
of Pandaria. Um, they are not to be mistaken or likened to the Silithid. They are not mindless mobs. They are not just a horde. Uh, they actually do have an empress. They have an entire feudal system. They have a social structure. They're just giant mantis people that are very, very mean and hit really hard in melee combat, which is kind of cool because the character models for them look really, really awesome. I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look yeah. at them. Yeah, I have. Yeah, those are really cool. Well, both um, those they, and the Mogu. I thought, holy crap, like these, now the, they look imposing. <laughs> absolutely. Now, the Mogu are big, monstrous creatures that were originally a wild race of brutes that fell into the magical waters of the Vale of Eternal Blossoms. Now, this is a zone that you can actually visit in Pandaria, the Vale of Eternal Blossoms, and you can actually see parts of the Mogu Empire and... You can actually see the well itself that they had fallen into to gain sentience. Um, but not only did they gain sentience, they got stronger, faster, and bigger. They got to be essentially titan-sized. And when I say titan-sized, I do actually mean titan-sized. When you go through the Mogu palaces, when you go through all of their, their different buildings and things like that, you'll notice one very common thread among all of them. Every building is the exact same scale as, like, Alduar. It's that same height, that same response of the Titans. And also, you can see in all of these zones, Titan technology. Like, certain things, like, when you went to go see Algalon, or when you went to go do the Valonir quest, and you saw they had sort of the recorders, or if you did Hall of Stone or Hall of Lightning, you had the the interfaces with the, the tribunal and the consoles that you had to interact and open up, and you use sort of, like, computers... They're there. They're there in every single one of the Mogu instances. They're there in the Mogu ruins. They're all over the place. So not only do we know that these were a warlike race that ruled over all of Pandaria, that had enslaved the Pandarans and literally used them as slaves, but they were sanctioned, at least in part, by the Titans, which I think is kind of an important thing to look at. See, what I found most interesting was this ability that they have to mold flesh. <laughs> yes. I don't know how much of that comes through in the stories and all that. It's in the, in the Wildpedia. But um, holy crap and hell, when you're reading about everything that they're doing and working with these and creating their own slaves and everything, mm -hmm. then you're getting... A, 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 an idea of what it's going to be like questing in those areas and especially the dungeons there must be incredible because of this. Well, there, there are, and that's one of the cool things, and this is not going to ruin anything because I can't ruin it even for myself at this point. Because while you're doing questing and while you're doing the dungeons and while you're unraveling stuff, and we'll get to another a part of this called the Lore Walkers in a section, but as you're uncovering more and more things, you learn that the Pandarans might have actually been created by the Mogu. Like, they may have actually been flesh-crafted specifically as slaves oh. for the Mogu race. And there's a lot of hints to that, and a lot of the quests, and a lot of the, the flavor stuff that you find, and a lot of the archaeology bits you uncover as well. So it's something that hasn't been flushed out. There's really not a whole lot of detail on it right now. There's a ton of dead ends on the beta, so I don't even know if that's the case. But there's a lot of hints at it, which is kind of an interesting twist. That would be freaking awesome is what it would be if if that's what you find out at the tail end of the questing for this expansion that would be a killer ending absolutely and be your stereotypical sci-fi ending which i'm absolutely okay with yeah definitely um now the big big baddies and the ones that sort of orchestrate 
just about everything awful is going to be the Shaw. Now, the Shaw are physical incarnations of negative emotions. The Panda race, the Pandarans, and all races in general, and Pandaria itself, tend to expunge bad emotions in order to gain peace and balance. So as they, they take these pieces of themselves and push it out, the Shaw sort of latch onto those negative emotions and gain physical form and gain power. So it's not uncommon to see the Shahs of doubt, the Shahs of anger, the Shahs of hatred, um, the Shahs of murder, the Shahs of rage. The, there's so many different aspects that they can take on. And one of the first things you encounter is in the Temple of the Jade Serpent, which is the Shah of doubt. And it's the very first one. And this is giant monstrosity that looks like a tentacle rape hentai monster on crack. And what it does is it actually taunts you and talks to you throughout the entire encounter, not just the encounter itself, but as you're getting closer to it, as you're unlocking bosses, as you're moving through the instance, you get whispers. Very oh, I similar, love that. <laughs> very similar to how Cthulhu was with AQ40. Very similar to how the Lich King was in ICC. So you have this moment where it's trying to make you doubt yourself. And during the encounter, it actually takes the negative portions of you and pulls it out of you and manifests it physically so that you have to fight yourself which is kind of an interesting aspect, and it's something that's been done before, yeah. but the way they do it here, it just it fits with that particular Shaw. Like it's that Shaw's sort of shtick, it's his ability, but it fits. He's a Shaw of doubt. What better way to make you doubt yourself than have to basically face yourself head on? Absolutely well done. All of the Shaw that have been encountered so far, and all of the lore that we've even seen, all of the history for it, has been absolutely just jaw-dropping and it's very very typical and i hate to say this but it's very typical oriental style lore like it's chinese and japanese style lore that is just these are demons these are the enemies these are what these can infest people these can possess people these can make people do things that are against their nature but they can only do it through influence they can't really do it directly unless they absorb quite enough power to manifest as a larger physical form so it's kind of nifty in and of itself. And they all look cool. I think that it's... I, I like the Asian appeal of this expansion because, I mean, we, we've seen different takes on racial mythology in WoW already now. And a lot of it has been Western and Tolkien-esque based kind of mythology. And so now to have this kind of thing that everybody can easily recognize and accept. So it's not that you have to explain that these are evil spirits and this is why and all that. No, we get it. We, we've all seen, you know, all the movies, we've read the things, we, we understand that mythology, the Asian, Asian lore mythology, so we can roll with it. So they, they don't have to waste time. They can hit the ground running. And it's still, it's, it's different enough than from everything else that we have in WoW to date that it's going to be jarring, but in still familiar, but jarring from everything else to separate it. it. It just works on so many levels. Now, not only that, but there's some interesting tidbits for the Shaw that a lot of people have sort of been glossing over, but I've noticed this through my questing and from what other lore heads out there have been looking at. There are some hints right now that the greater Shaw's influence right now with after the, the their eminence, they're coming into power, is tied potentially with the old gods. And not just tied with the old gods, but also tied with the light and the battle between light and darkness. 
So while the pandas themselves may not have had any sort of religious experience with it or belief in it, that's not to say the Mogu didn't. That's not to say that the, the Mogu didn't understand the conflict between like what was going on in the greater world, that the scourge was coming, or that you know there is these forces of light. And the reason I say this is because as you're questioning, when you get to Outland, um, and I did some quests that took me to Shathrath and things like that, there are new quest stuff that pops up that starts hinting at the battle between light and darkness and how it's beginning to escalate now that the Shaw have recontacted the rest of the world. Because not only were the, the pandas for 10,000 years veiled off from the greater of Azeroth, but spiritually these Shaw were cut off from everything else as well. So it's kind of interesting to see how what remaining old gods might, you know, interact with them or how that might influence things later on. Um, and this also keeps in mind something else. We were told that the big bad encounter, for at least for the first portion of the expansion, for the first content, was going to be us sort of trying to dethrone Garrosh Hellscream. It was going to be Horde and Alliance alike. Well, what started happening that made him so bad that even the Horde want him gone now? Like... At the end of Cataclysm, he started sort of manning up and started fucking around less and less and has actually become, you know, trying to be a respectable leader. He's basically asking himself, what would Thrall do? And starting to take those actions. So what happened that made him so violently opposed that, well, obviously the Alliance want him dead one way or another because, well, it's Varian Ren and he hates him. But the Horde as well. So I'm kind of curious to see if, it, if there's not like a Shaw that maybe escaped Pandaria and has maybe latched on to Garrosh's inadequacies and have started pulling the strings like a puppet, which is why we have more aggression from Garrosh, more commands that seem genocidal or homicidal. So I'm kind of curious if that's going to tie in any way. I wouldn't be too surprised. Uh, yeah, it, again, that then opens up the, the, the floodgates for them to do whatever they want with the rest of Azeroth, not just... Pandaria, which again they they could they could do damn near anything they want, and and epic in scope as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Now those are just like I said, those are the main bad guys for right now. What we're going to see in the future, we don't know because every content update is going to introduce something new. They've said that flat out. Now, the one that I want to talk about a little bit here is going to be a new faction that's coming out, and it's called the Lore Walkers. Now, the Lore Walkers is essentially a faction of story seekers, story holders in Pandaris. They are the librarians. They are the ones that house all of the, the anecdotal data. And they are the ones that want to discover the truth of just about everything. Now, the Lore Walkers originally started as a faction to try to, in an attempt to try to make archaeology more fun. One of the failings of Cataclysm was that archaeology was boring as shit. And they said that it was going to be this big lore thing. You're going to get all these cool little tidbits of information. Yeah, but you didn't. You got the same damn common artifact 35 fucking times in a row. And you learned the same goddamn piece of information 35 fucking times in a row. And it just became absolutely goddamn boring unless you were chasing a rare. Now enters the Lore Walkers. Now the Lore Walker faction has a couple things about it that are really, really cool. Not only does it give you a whole new section of archaeology that you can go through that uncovers Mogu artifacts, Pandaren artifacts, Mantid artifacts. They also sell fragments that they themselves have collected to make archaeology easier on you. So when you're going through, and instead of having to go everywhere in the world, you can actually trade uh, certain things in for more basic 
artifact fragments or you can just buy them outright with gold, which is kind of cool. Also, because the world is so self-contained, they tend to share fragments. So you can work on anything you want, but one fragment may work for all three of them. One fragment may work for two of the races. So it gives you more flexibility. And instead of having to fly all the way to Eastern Plaguelands to hopefully get a troll fragment uh, and then go all the way back down to Kalimdor to maybe get an elf fragment, you can kind of just go about it at your pace and level it up as you go along. And each of the pieces unlocks further story elements, further background, and further pieces about the Pandaren people. Now, not only that, but they will also give you quests. They will give you quests that, that basically send you to either interact with other factions um, or to sort of discover truth, whether it's going to a dungeon and finding out what's going on there. Or in one particular case, one that I thought was particularly cool was the Heart of the Swarm story. And did you get a chance to watch that video? Yes, I did. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And that's... I mean, that's saying a lot considering, like, I've maxed out archaeology on two tunes right now. And it it's a horrible profession. I mean, it's, it it's, it's terrible. You, you are doing nothing but flying from spot to spot, hoping that you're getting, you know, enough to just be done and move on to the next common, because that's all you're getting. I mean, I've gotten, I think, two of the epic ones. And they're immediately useless. So, oh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple that would have been good for a little while, but were quickly replaced by uh, PvP items in no time flat. So, like, I'm hoping that they're going to be putting in new items that are making it worthwhile as well. Now, they are doing that. There are going to be new rares. There are going to be new items for that. But what I thought was cool, and I'm just going to go back to the, yeah, the magic yeah. story here real quick, is... It starts basically with you approaching the lore walkers for more information on the Manted race. And that's what triggers this in-game cinematic. And it's the, the basically the Pandaren lorekeeper, lorekeeper Cho, uh, explaining everything that he does know about the Manteds, everything that's been collected in this library. Because you are in a Pandaren library. Like, their main stronghold is a giant fucking library with books and scrolls and tablets and just looks absolutely amazing. But he tells you the story of how the Mantids and the Pandarans have been interacting and how the Mantids have been essentially uh, every so often, every you know number X number of years, they swarm. And how their behavior now is starting to, it's, a, it, it's erratic. It's not what it normally is. And explains that there's there may be some merit into you investigating what's going on with it. But the way it's presented is not just a block of text that you read and click accept. It's an entire story, and it is a well-presented story. Oh, God, yeah. The fantastic voice acting. And this is just the first one. There's going to be more about this as you uncover stuff about the Mogu, as you uncover more stuff about the Mantid, as you uncover stuff about the Shaw. And it's absolutely fantastic. Now, and that's the other cool thing is the lore walkers themselves are more than just quest givers and more than just archaeology folks. They're their own faction as well. You gain reputation with them as you uncover story bits. So you get rewarded for discovering archaeological fragments, but also for exploring the world. As you explore Pandaria, the nooks, the crannies, as you get every little piece of it, instead of getting just like a tabard at the end of it, like the, the explorer's tabard that you get now, no, 
you get faction. You earn points with them for exploring the world, which I think is one of the coolest things that they could have done with a faction because it is rewarding people for just basically enjoying the game and enjoying the world and exploring what's out there, which is something they have not done before. It's either been you have to turn in X number of tokens, you have to run a dungeon X number of times, or you have to kill X number of things. No, you explore, you gather artifact pieces, you uncover bits of story, and you get faction points with it. Now, the rewards from that are not yet in-game or not yet discussed, but you can bet that there's going to be at least some rewards, possibly items, uh, probably nothing like enchants or anything like that, but definitely flavor text items, I would guess. Like, I'm going to put my money down on that, that you earn from earning faction with the lore walkers, and that is absolutely amazing because that's exactly the type of reputation I would like to have in this game. Well, it makes sense. It fits with it, and it, it then makes it so that the archaeology profession actually is worth something. Because, no, you're not necessarily going to be getting awesome gear and whatnot, but you're actually going to be, for those of us who like those stories, those little cinematics there are absolutely astounding just to kind of relax and enjoy it for a moment. It was really, the, the presentation was top-notch. I thought it was really, really well done. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And for somebody like me who the story is why I keep playing and why I keep trying to finish raids and things like that, this is amazing for me because it gives me something else to do and it gives me a new reason to do archaeology. Like I can honestly say that I've been doing a ton of archaeology in the beta. That's saying something because I hate it on live. Yeah. Like I, you can pay me to do it on live. But here you've given me the exact proper cookie that I needed. Yeah. Okay. Now we've gotten all the story part out of the way. I'm going to take a few minutes here to finish up at least the end part of the Pandaria before I get into any questions that just explain some of the other changes that are going to be coming with the Mr. Pandaria expansion. Um, one major thing that they're doing is they're removing all of the, the caps from daily questing. So you no longer are restricted to 25 daily quests. You can do as many as you want in whatever order you want. Now, the importance of this is that at level 90 in Mists, there is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 200 rotating daily quests which means there's going to be an absolute metric shit ton of stuff to do at level 90. It's not just raining or running dungeons. The daily quests are going to be everything from your traditional, you know, killing a certain amount of things or uncovering a certain amount of things to something that may be tied in with archaeology or the lore walkers. So there's going to be a ton of stuff to do, and it's going to vary. And you can do as much of it as you want or as little of it as you want which is very, very important because it gives you, the player, the choice on how much you can do. Yeah, I actually, and I've never hidden my hatred of dailies and how it's lazy game design, but if you're going to give us that many to choose from, it's no longer lazy game design. It's actually you are then offering the choice to the gamer to do whatever they want with their time, and I'm actually... I'm looking forward to this because it means that if I want to do a crap load of dailies that are, you know, with one character, just go out and do something that has to do with professions. Right now, you're doing what? You're doing jewel crafting, if you're a jewel crafter kind of thing, or you're fishing and cooking. Like here, I'm hoping there's going to be a lot of variety just by virtue of the fact that there's going to be so many to choose from. Absolutely. And I think that's, and it goes with the philosophy, and they've said this flat out, and even Ghostcrawler, Greg Street has said himself, they want to give players more things to do at endgame. Not because they think that, you know, players need to have something to do, but they want players to have something that they can do and not be bored, because not everybody wants to raid. 
Not everybody wants to run dungeons. Not everybody wants to do three shitty profession dailies. Nobody wants, you know, not everybody, there, there has to be something for everybody. So whether it's pet battles or whether it's daily quests or whether it's archaeology, at the end of the day, they want to induce more options. Now, along that same way, they're getting rid of maximum level normal dungeons. So in Cataclysm, at level 85, there were normal dungeons that you had to run in order to gear up and keep going. Those are completely gone. In place of them, they're introducing something called challenge modes. Now, what challenge modes are, are they're essentially uh, you challenging yourself, whether it's timed runs or certain achievements or things like that, where you rank yourself not just against yourself or other people in your guild or things like that that people have been doing for years for fun, but against everybody else on your server, which is really interesting because it gives you an incentive to go back to these dungeons and run them. And you earn additional valor points. Um, you earn medals, whether it's bronze, silver, or gold. But you also earn the chance to get gear that does not have stats but it's something you can use to transmog your other gear. So whether it's like the straw monk style hats or whether it's robes or prayer beads or things like that, they're giving you a whole bunch of stuff that you can do with those challenge modes to earn non, like you're not learning just valor points. You're not earning just gear. You're not just running it to gear up, but you can actually do it just to have fun. Like it, which I think is a really interesting concept. I hate it maximum level normal dungeons i absolutely hated the idea that there are certain dungeons that i had to run over and over again just to be capable of doing heroics and then run those same dungeons again no at this they say by the time you hit level 90 you're ready for heroics and you're ready for raiding and everything else is just fun cookies and things you can do on your own and that's and how it that's should really be cool. That's how exactly. it should be, because otherwise you're looking at, once again, lazy game design. We're only going to design this number of instances, but we're going to make it so that they have to run them over and over and over again, and then run them over and over and over again just in heroic mode. That is a lazy game design. I hate that. And this is the appropriate cookie, too. Transmog is one of their most successful things that they have added to the game. Transmog, I mean, personally, I've spent probably about... 10,000 gold on transmog alone since the beginning of cataclysm a lot of people have as well and i'm not just talking casuals hardcore raiders everybody else it's one of those things where you can personalize your character how you want it to be unique compared to every other character around you no more are four dwarves sitting in the row wearing the exact same tier armor now you can look however you want to look and that's kind of cool and that's very important to a lot of people myself included now adding gear that you can earn through challenge modes that has no stats, but its entire purpose is nothing but transmog, is a fantastic cookie to dangle on that stick, but it also gives me a reward for going back and doing that that I personally will, will enjoy immensely. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Now, also to keep challenge modes normalized, you can't outgear it. You can't go through with raid gear and heroic level raid gear like you can now and completely overpower like a heroic. No. Challenge modes scale you down. They scale you down to an appropriate level that everybody who does it, every single person who does it, operates on the same stat economy, the same item level, regardless of what armor they are wearing. And that's really cool, too, because it also gives you a very, for the competitive players, an even playing field no matter what. 
So for those people that say, well, I want to be able to showcase my skill, I want to show that I know how to do my class better than anybody else, whatever the case is, put your money where your mouth is. That's the best thing that I'm hearing about this as well, is that one of the things that I've hated about WoW is the dependency on gear, not really skill, let's be honest. And unfortunately you see that in pvp as well as in pve and this here is going to make it so that your gear doesn't matter it is going to be all about your skill i absolutely love that yep absolutely and it's a great it is a great feature it really really honestly is and it's one that i'm looking forward to as well and it's also one that reason i'm looking forward to is because for those players that think they know everything and want to go into a raid or want to go into a group and claim they know everything about their class, I can tell them to go back and try to do a challenge mode and see how they do. Like, show me your ins and outs of your class. Go for it. Absolutely. Go for it. Do it. And it it's a great little proving ground. And it's and from a, a completely guild uh, function sort of aspect, it's a great recruiting tool as well for me as well. Um, and I've said as well three times there. Sorry. But it's exciting for me because when I have new recruits and I want to put them through their paces, I'm not just taking them through a heroic that they can just blunder their way through. I can take them on a challenge mode and see how they do. If they know their quest, I can, or they know their class. It's not just completing some arbitrary set of bosses or, you know, how many things can you pull? How quickly can we get through it? No, it's show me that you know what you're doing. So for me, it's a fantastic tool for guild recruitment as well. Cool. Okay. And the last thing that I think I want to talk about here before I'm done with my rant about Pandaria is that we're going to be getting a new graphic novel, and it's going to call oh, yeah. it The Pearl of Pandaria. Um, this all takes place pre-Cataclysm, and it's right about the time that players are starting to get ready to engage the Lich King. So we're talking about, you know, right at the end of Wrath of the Lich King expansion. Um, it ties in with Chen Storm Stout, which was the hero from Warcraft 3. And what's cool about it is Samwise, the person who is the, I think he's VP of Art Direction at, uh, at Blizzard, the one that created Pandarans to begin with, the one whose artwork is all over the place, sat down with him and Metzen and worked on the creation of the story and the tone for the graphic novel with the writers and creators of the novel itself. So not only is it going to be consistent, but it's going to be something that ties in well with what we've already established in the world and just be absolutely well done. And the art style is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. the It looks gorgeous. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's the right people working on it, that it will be an engaging story. Like the, uh, the Worgen one was absolutely phenomenal. But as I've said before, too, not all WoW comics are great. So I'm really, I got high hopes for this. As do I, and I will definitely be picking it up on day one. I will be dropping real money for it. Yeah, for sure. But that's about all I have for information <laughs> for Mr. Pandaria. And uh, so now the question is, Roger, do you have any questions? No, I, I've been asking them as we've been going along. I um, There's a lot of things that I, I was reading up on, on the wiki that I was really interested in that it just made it seem like the lore is is not necessarily being forced, which is something that a lot of people were worried about with the pandas and that it's just catering to what people want and not necessarily going to fit in with the, the themes and, and in with the lore, but they're making it work. And, and I mean, you can see how some of it they're, they're using 
a shortcut to to make it work like case in point the shroud that hid them well that's a pretty easy fix for something like that but it also works it can Absolutely. work and a lot of the other things that they talk about too and, and the 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 monks that wander out and and how it affects you and the choices that you make with either one well you could look at it as well they're only putting one new race and then splitting it apart as opposed to designing two different things but once again you're like but it works they made it work and not only did they make it work but they made it work in such a way that it actually appears like it's going to be interesting going forward having that one common race for both factions well and that, and one of the things that they mentioned and they mentioned this at blizzcon last year and this was metzen metzen at the lore stage because they do have a lore stage now when they do the convention it was that they felt that cataclysm one of the big failures of it was that it didn't encourage people into the story of what was going on. While it did tie up a lot of loose ends and it did a lot of things where, like, the, the finally felling Deathwing and getting to that end of that story was very important, the entire expansion was essentially a vehicle for just that. Now, personally, one of the things I like so much about Miss is that, like you said, the lore just works. And not only does the lore just work, it has that same sense of exploration, that same sense of new that I had going into vanilla WoW, that same sort of awe, that same sort of uh, of wonder, because I don't know what's going to go on here. And they've said this is their opportunity to reinvent the wheel. Like, everybody knew the story of Deathwing. Everybody knew the story uh, of all the NPCs sort of leading up to it. Whether you read the books or whether you played Warcraft or whether you played any of the expansions of World of Warcraft, you knew what was going on. Here, you have no idea. All of it is brand new. All of it is shiny. All of it is an excuse to explore the world in a new and exhilarating way. And I do. I have that exact same sense of awe and love that I had going through vanilla. It feels exactly the same for me. Well, we cannot top that. So with that, we were actually going to call it a wrap. Thank you very much for that wrap-up. I appreciate it. Again, I'm not having gotten into the beta. I've been wondering about a lot of it. So this is fantastic to hear that it is bringing back those same feelings from vanilla. Because it is, of course, like it, it, there's been moments of, of greatness in each of the expansions. However, there's also been enough of the same that causes people like myself to unsubscribe for months at a time so hearing that this is that same level of excitement and thrilling and and exploration and stuff yeah i can't wait so with that like i said we're going to call it a wrap of course you can find the show notes at forthelore.com you can email forthelore at gmail.com and on twitter at forthelore so take care and we'll talk to you guys next week bye Last week, I read an interview with David Cox, the senior producer for Castlevania Lords of Shadow. The interview focused on the game's downloadable content, and more importantly, just why it was so bad. Cox himself admitted that the two DLC packs for Lords of Shadow, Reverie and Resurrection, were, in his own words, a mistake. As we've discussed before, Lords of Shadow was actually the highest-selling game in the history of the Castlevania franchise, and according to Cox, it was so successful, far more than anticipated, that Konami wanted Mercury Steam to produce DLC for the game. Unfortunately, Mercury Steam had not planned to make any DLC for the game, and it had to be rushed out the door. 
Reverie and Resurrection told the important story of how Gabriel changed from the man he was at the end of the game to the monster we saw in the epilogue. While an important story that adds to the overall Lords of Shadow lore, it didn't really work the way Cox would have liked. He would like content that adds to the story, but doesn't necessarily continue it. I understand what Cox is saying, and mostly agree with it. When a company releases DLC for a game that adds extra story on after the original ending, in a way it cheapens the impact of that ending. Moreover, it makes fans feel like they have to spend more money to get the whole game. However, if the DLC tells a side story that still enriches the overall lore, but doesn't have to occur after the events of the game, then the overall product is better for it. This got me thinking about many of the downloadable content packs I've played, and how well they've been implemented into their games. Of course, I'm only looking at story-based DLC and not costume, weapons, or anything that doesn't add to the lore. The first game that comes to mind as an example of doing it right is Borderlands. All the content packs were additions to the game and the world. They could be played at any point in the game and were great additions to the overall story. However, players who skipped the DLC aren't necessarily missing anything from their game, aside from a ton of fun that I'd still highly recommend to anyone. Of course, I can't forget about Bioware. The first Mass Effect had Pinnacle Station, which was mostly focused on combat, but Bring Down the Sky introduced the Batarians to the Mass Effect universe. It was an addition, but not essential. Dragon Age Origins was a mixed bag, with solid additions like Stone Prisoner and Return to Ostagar, and a great side story in Liliana's Song. Darkspawn Chronicles and the Golems of Amgaric were solid concepts in theory, but missed the mark on execution. Now Witch Hunt, on the other hand, was a complete disaster. Not only was it not very fun to play, it was an episode occurring after the end of the game, but it failed to build upon that ending, while at the same time feeling necessary to the overall plot. I didn't play most DLC for Dragon Age 2 because that would require actually playing Dragon Age 2, but the concept for the, all the extra content is solid. Mass Effect 2 has definitely been the high watermark for Bioware. Extra characters, fun missions, and great stories, Mass Effect 2 delivered a great deal of high-quality content that, again, added to the game without being integral to the experience. An argument can be made against Arrival, since it occurs after the events of the game, but I see that more as a prologue to Mass Effect 3 than an epilogue to Mass Effect 2. Either way, it's still not essential to the core Mass Effect 2 experience. Overall, I'd say Bioware does a good job designing DLC that people want to play, but not necessarily feel like they have to play. The recent Follow games have had almost universally great DLC, and the one that was a direct follow-up to the game, Broken Steel, actually improved the core Fallout 3 experience. Grand Theft Auto 4 and Red Dead Redemption both released DLC packs that could almost be called full expansions, telling stories completely separate from the main games, and L.A. Noir's downloadable cases were on par with anything from the standard game. Rockstar definitely goes on the doing it right file. There's plenty of games in the fail category as well. The most infamous offender is Prince of Persia 2008. The game actually ended on a cliffhanger, so Ubisoft could sell an epilogue DLC. Though how something that didn't even have an ending in the first place can actually have an epilogue is beyond me. 
Dragon's Dogma and the Assassin's Creed games both have DLCs with plenty of content, but add absolutely nothing of substance to the story of their games. And also, despite how great they were, I have to say that Alan Wake's DLC episodes definitely go against Cox's idea of good DLC. They were essential to the overall Alan Wake story. The fact that the quality was so high meant I didn't mind the purchase, but that doesn't change the fact that, in concept, the episodes were a continuation of the main game instead of an extension of it, and many fans felt like they were almost forced to buy them to get the entire story. The core of Cox's argument comes down to one thing. Planning. So many gamers get upset at the thought of planned DLC, feeling that if it's a consideration during development, it should be in the game at no extra charge. Well, there are plenty of ideas that are planned for games that never make it into the final product, DLC or not. In this day and age, DLC is just a fact of the games industry. Any developer that doesn't plan for it is doing themselves a disservice, just like Mercury Steam did. Cox merely wants Mercury Steam and other developers to make sure the content that should be part of the main game is there, while having ideas for ways to make the product bigger and better. That way, gamers who want to experience more of the game have that option, and studios increase their revenue without their fans feeling ripped off. In that scenario, everybody wins.